Well, we've got a lot to talk about today, and so we're actually just going to jump right in. Uh, we've been studying Ephesians all summer. We're now getting close to the end of this letter. We're in Ephesians 5, the second part of Ephesians 5, and I'm going to start by reading uh, in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. 19 years ago, I was so nervous um, driving to pick Kelly up for our first date um, since our very devastating and public breakup six years earlier in sixth grade. And uh, and I was nervous, and I, I wanted everything to be just right, and, and I wanted to bring her flowers, and, and I decided to bring her yellow flowers, yellow roses, uh, because they seemed to imply something different than red or pink, and yellow seemed to be the color that you could bring a friend. And so I showed up at her house uh, with these yellow flowers, and, uh, and although I'm pretty sure I convinced her to kiss me by the end of that first date, uh, it started out as two best friends going to the Rainforest Cafe down by Disney. Uh, this week, Kelly and I celebrate 15 years of being married, and, uh, and I have to tell you, this text is a hard text to work on and preach on the week of your anniversary. It's a very difficult and convicting text. And in our current cultural context, it even makes it more difficult. Because what's being asked of both men and women is not easy, and some of us might even find it absolutely ridiculous. Now, we've said this a lot during our study of Ephesians, but Paul here in this letter has been showing us again and again a different kind of way to be human. And so here with marriage, he's showing us a different way to be married. See, Paul is not trying to write a bestseller on marriage. Not, he's not trying to write the seven best steps to having a wonderful and healthy marriage that everyone, uh, no matter what your religious beliefs, would just soak it up. No, he's actually writing a very specific thing to a very specific audience, and he's saying this is a different kind of way to be married. This is the kind of way to be married in light of the truth of the gospel. So today I'm going to do something that I vowed as a young, arrogant seminary student uh, that I would never do, 
and I'm going to preach from an alliterated outline. And so we are going to look at the premise of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the point of marriage. Marriage, its premise, its purpose, and its point. So we have to start with the premise. We have to start with the premise by which Paul begins this discussion. Paul's description of marriage here begins with the premise that he's talking to, that he's addressing to spirit-filled people. If we go back to verse 21, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this sentence is actually, in the original language, isn't a standalone sentence. It's the, it's the ending clause of a very long run-on sentence, which Paul does throughout this letter. He kind of goes on and on and on with, without ever kind of ending uh, the sentence. And so what we have there in verse 21 is the ending of a sentence that actually began back in verse 18, which is what we looked at last week. But I want us to look at, at that one more time. So going up to verse 18 of Ephesians 5, it says this. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When Paul gets to marriage... He isn't changing the subject. He's expounding on what he's been talking about for the last several pages of his letter. He's been painting this picture of what a life in the Spirit would look like. And if you're you're living by the Spirit, this is what your marriage should and could look like. Now, I know this is a lot of churchy talk. Um, Spirit-filled life just means a Christian life. We believe that when, when, when we become Christians, that, that the, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, indwells us and begins changing us, begins making us new. Uh, and so uh, a spirit-filled life is one that is, is living by that reality. It's what we spent most of the spring talking about uh, when we looked at the fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul begins saying, okay, if you have two spirit-filled people, if you have two Christians, this is what their marriage could and should look like. I said this a couple weeks ago when we, when we got into chapter four of this letter, but starting in chapter four, um, Paul begins to answer the question, what does your life, what should your wife, wife, what should your life look like in light of the gospel? Because the whole, the whole first part of the letter, the first three chapters, he's really been answering the question, is Jesus who he says he is? And so if you've said yes to that, now this is how you should live. So saying yes to the Jesus question essentially is saying, yes, I'm a lot worse than I think. I I can't fix myself. I can't mend myself. I can't clean myself up enough. No, there is nothing less than the death of God's own son that can save me. But saying yes also says, I'm more loved than I thought. I'm more loved than I can imagine that not only would the Son of God die for me, but that he wanted to. So saying yes to the Jesus question both affirms and humbles us. It removes both our self-centeredness and our self-neediness. Because once we've said yes to the Jesus question, we realize that in Christ, we have more than we need. We realize that, that in Christ, we have, we have everything we need, so therefore we can put others' needs above our own. We can serve other people without the need for recognition or payment. And so Paul begins his description of marriage based on this premise, 
that two people have said yes to the Jesus question and now are being radically reoriented by the gospel. But before we kind of dig deeper into this premise, I want to I talk a little bit to those of you who are married to someone who hasn't said yes to the Jesus question, who isn't a Christian. Paul actually speaks directly to you in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says to you, he says, if you're married to someone who isn't a believer, don't divorce them. He says, if they are willing to stay with you as a believer, then you should be willing to stay with them as they are an unbeliever. And then he says in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. And he concludes with this. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I imagine uh, it's very hard to believe different things than your spouse. And I'm sure parenting uh, can be extra difficult in that scenario. I imagine at times you feel extremely lonely. I imagine it's, it's hard to come to church by yourself. It's hard that the most significant thing in your life cannot be shared by the most significant person in your life. And if that's you, memorize 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, and know that God and his word has made a promise to you that he is doing something significant in your spouse's life through you. Trust him in that. Now, if you aren't married and you've said yes to the Jesus question and you're, and you're thinking about someone who hasn't said yes, um, marriage is really tough and you're not making it any easier on yourself in that scenario because fundamentally you cannot be on the same page. In fact, Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he says, do not be yoked with unbelievers. Now, he's not talking about marriage here specifically. That, that wasn't the context by which he said this, but it does make sense that we apply that to marriage. Now, uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and cover everyone. If you're here and you aren't a Christian, uh, my hope is uh, that, first of all, that you enjoy being here and that this is a safe place for you and this is a place where you don't feel like anyone's forcing you into anything, but that you can just come and be and ask questions. But my hope is, if you're here, that as you hear what kind of marriage is possible because of Jesus, you'll be intrigued enough to at least wrestle with the question, is Jesus who he says he is? Because what I'm going to talk about the rest of our time together doesn't work without both people answering yes to that question. In order to experience marriage the way God intended it, in order to experience it as Paul begins describing it here in Ephesians, you have to have said yes to the Jesus question. I truly believe it's the best thing you can do for your marriage. So if, if you're here and you haven't said yes to that and your marriage is falling apart and your marriage is struggling, I cannot encourage you enough to wrestle with that question because I believe saying yes to that question will help you more than any other practical steps. So let's get back to the premise. In light of being radically reoriented, reoriented by the gospel, by becoming a person who submits to one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul says the wife should submit to her husband. Another way to say that 
is to grant the husband leadership in the marriage. To submit to your husband is to grant your husband leadership in the marriage. And then Paul goes on to say, and the husband should respond by leading like Jesus did, dying for the other. When Paul wrote this, do you know who would have been most kind of troubled by what he was writing? Men. It wasn't the women. And Paul knew he wasn't just writing to married men. He was writing to both married and single people. He was aware that single men and women would be reading this letter. And it's almost as if he's giving unmarried women, women a huge warning prior to getting married. It's almost as if he's saying to them, women, don't trust men. Don't trust a man with your life. Don't marry a man unless his male ego has been permanently reshaped by the gospel of the cross unless he is willing to give you whatever you need to thrive, unless he's willing to, even in your rebellion, even if you sin greatly against him, to fight for you, unless he's willing to die for you, anything less than that, and he's not worth your heart. I can imagine the single guys reading this letter are like, dang, dude, come on. Why you gotta do that, brah? You know, like I'm sure that that was like very disturbing to them, but that is what he was saying because that is what Christ had, had done for us. That is how Christ loved us. So if the man who is pursuing you for marriage hasn't been radically reoriented by the gospel, don't trust him with your heart. Paul spent a lot more ink addressing husbands in this passage than he did the wives. And because of that, I'm going to spend a lot more time talking to husbands and husbands-to-be. So women, uh, I'm not going to give you a lot of concrete instructions regarding submission because Paul doesn't. But I do think that Paul has a lot to say to you through his instructions to the husbands. But this is what I'll say about submission. If submission is giving your husband leadership, it means to trust him with responsibility. The leadership of the marriage is not about taking charge. It's about taking responsibility. Let him take responsibility. It's important to note that Paul, as he paints this picture of marriage, is not assigning task. He's not saying that all the decisions are to be made by the husband. He's not saying that a wife shouldn't work outside the home. He's not saying who has control over the money or who should do the dishes or the laundry. Again, if he starts with the premise that two people have said yes to the Jesus question, he believes that they have been radically reoriented by the gospel, which means they become people whose mission in life is to outserve the other. If that's the case, if you bring two people together whose mission in life is to outserve the other, there is so much liberty and how they live out this instruction of submission and leadership. There are so many different ways that this could look that would still be God-honoring. If a husband says to his wife, well, this is the way my father and mother did it, so this is the way we're gonna do it. That is not a man whose heart has been radically reshaped by the gospel of the cross. If a husband has his wife cross-stitch, verse 22, wife submit to your husband to hang in the home office. That man has not been radically reoriented by the gospel. 
If a husband is more concerned whether or not you as his wife are being obedient to the scriptures about submission instead of how he's doing it, dying for you, that man has not been radically reoriented by the gospel. The leadership of the marriage is not about taking charge. It's about taking responsibility. And your job, wives, is to let him take responsibility. This was Adam's great failure in the garden. In Genesis 3, when when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and God came after them and he said, Adam, what have you done? Did you you do the one thing I told you not to do? What does Adam do? He says, "It's it's this woman you gave me. It's her fault. What should he have done? Well, he should have said, yeah, I did. I disobeyed you. And not only should he have said that, he said, He should have said, and and punish me in her place. I'll take double punishment. I'll cover for her. That was his job. That's what it means to be the leader in your family. Robertson uh, McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary um, uh, back in the the 80s. And um, uh, he resigned prematurely because his wife Muriel uh, had Alzheimer's disease and, and she, really, she really needed his care. And when he, when he wrote about making that decision to, to resign from this very prestigious job, uh, he talked about the last two years while he was president and, and she was going downhill. And, uh, and he said, you know, she was great when I was with her. She was calm, she was happy. But whenever I would leave, she would become very panic-stricken and, and, and just kind of just a lot, a lot of anxiety. And they only, they only lived about a half a mile from the college, from his office. And he said every day he'd walk to work, and, and, and usually she'd, she'd be about five minutes behind him, following him to work. And that throughout the day, uh, she would come to his office 10, 12, 15 times. And at night when he would be getting her ready for bed and he would take off her shoes, he would notice how bloodied her feet were from all the walking. And eventually he just decided, this, I, can't, I shouldn't do this. I need to resign and become her primary caregiver. And at his resignation speech, which has been seen by so many people, um, he said this. He said, after 40 years of being married to Muriel, if I spent the next 40 years serving her in this way, I'd still be in her debt. That is what it looks like to be a leader in your home. Leadership of marriage is not about taking charge. It's about taking responsibility. Let him take responsibility. A Christian husband's job is to lead his family through service. He has the biblical responsibility in the home to set a spiritual standard by his own sacrifice to make God's grace evident to all those who are entrusted to him. So husbands, our job in leading our wives and our family is to sacrificially serve them in such a way that they understand that it really is all about grace. That's our job. And wives, your job is to let us do that knowing full well that we're gonna get it wrong a lot of the time. Knowing full well that we're gonna need a lot of help in that. Knowing full well that we're gonna need a lot of encouragement to continue to try to pursue that. The premise of marriage is that because two people have been radically reoriented by the gospel, they outdo each other in displaying grace and the husband takes the lead in the outdoing. 
So what's the purpose of marriage? Another way to ask this is, why do people get married? In Paul's day, uh, marriage was a business proposition. You didn't marry for love. You didn't marry because someone completed you. You married to get a cow, right? You married uh, because it was good for the family position in society. You married for security. And in fact, this is still the case in many cultures, uh, but it's just not here. Here, we marry for love. We marry because someone makes us feel good about ourselves, because someone, we just feel so romantic with them, and they, and they give us incredible affection, and they complete us. But neither of those reasons Paul gives. I find it interesting that when Paul goes to address husbands, the very first thing he tells them is he says, husbands, love your wives, because that wasn't a given in his context. So what's the purpose? What's the purpose that Paul gives for marriage? Well, one commentator on this passage says, the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. Purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. I wanna read again verses 24 through 27. Um, Or 25, excuse me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. There's an old hymn uh, that we used to sing in my church growing up all the time. um, And I'm sure some of you know it, uh, but the lyrics are so good. And this hymn is based on this particular passage of scripture. The lyrics go like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her and for her life, he died. That's the gospel. The gospel says Jesus looked down from heaven and saw that we are just shadows of ourselves. He saw that, 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 that we, were, we were so far from what God had in mind when he thought us up. He saw us ruined by the fall. He sees our brokenness and our selfishness. And instead of turning away, instead of rejecting us, instead of discarding us, he comes after us. And he comes after us so that he can give himself to us, so that he can take the punishment for our sins, so he could die on the cross for us. But it's not just about our forgiveness. Jesus' act of sacrificial love isn't just about our pardon, but our beauty. Jesus paid for our sins because he saw who we really are. He could see our future beauty. When Jesus came to earth, when he put flesh on, you know what he was saying to us? He was saying, I know what you could be. I I was there at your creation. I was there when we thought you up. And you're just a shadow of that. And what you truly are is incredible. And through my blood and through my sacrifice, I'm gonna get you there. Wherever you are, with answering the Jesus question, he is seeking you. And once you say yes to it, that's when he gets to work. That's when he begins to, to wash you, which is, which is the symbolism behind baptism and, and how he begins to transform you through his word. As we engage Jesus around the scripture, he's constantly tri- tri- driving us to change, to repent, to leave things behind. That's what we've been looking at the past two weeks. That's what the past two weeks' sermons have been about. 
And once you say yes to the Jesus question, he begins transforming you into who you truly are for the sake of others. Which is why gospel reenactment is the purpose of biblical marriage. I want to I want to talk uh, to the single people for a minute, um, which there are a lot of you. There, there are about fifty percent of our church is single. Now, if you're single and you're looking for a spouse, you're probably looking for a finished product. You're probably looking for someone who's beautiful and pulled together and accomplished. Maybe has some some money put away. Um, that's not gospel reenactment. That kind of thinking uh, says that the purpose of marriage is personal fulfillment. Some of you have dismissed a lot of potential spouses, right? When you walk into a room, how long does it take you to dismiss about 90% of the room as a potential mate? Probably just a few minutes, right? What if before you dismiss someone as a potential spouse, you sought out what God was doing in that person's life? In marriage, our primary job as husbands and wives is to imagine our spouse on that final day, the day of God's judgment, a day in which God destroys all evil and death and suffering, the day when he brings about his new heavens and his new earth and everything wrong with us just falls off. And everything deformed and distorted is transformed and we become what we always truly were. If before you dismiss someone as a potential spouse, you sought out what God was doing in that person's life, you might fall in love. To truly fall in love with someone is to imagine yourself being there on that final day and looking at that person and saying, I knew you could always look like that. I knew that's who you were. If you're married, are you committed to that picture? Are you committed to your spouse's future beauty? Do you even have that picture in your mind? Is that picture so prominent and so clear to you so that when you speak to your spouse, it's as if you are speaking vision over them? That's the purpose of our marriages. Now, I need to say, this isn't about uh, trying to change. This isn't about like having a vision for your spouse that's your vision for them, that that you, you hope that one day you will be able to change them into this type of person. It's not even really about changing them at all. It's about seeing them as God sees them and speaking to them with that future beauty in mind. On that final day, I don't want to be surprised when I look at Kelly. I want to look at her and see her in her glory and be in awe that I knew that's who she was, and even more so. So what do you need to do to get there? What do you need to do to get there? Have you prayed? Have you prayed and asked God to give you eyes to see your spouse like he does? When was the last time you just sat down with your spouse and you just dreamed together? You talked about the things that, that, that make your heart beat faster. When was the last time you just sat down and just asked your spouse lots of questions with no goal of trying to fix or solve any problems? If you're married and what attracted you to your spouse was that he was so hot 
or uh, she had a really good paying job. And, uh, and, and you, you started that way. You can change the trajectory of your marriage story today. Just because you started that way doesn't mean it has to continue on that path. Because we all know that ends badly. That, that beauty, that hotness goes away, that jobs are lost. But the story of your marriage could change today by just simply praying and saying, God, show me what you had in mind when you thought up my spouse and give me the courage to speak that vision over them. Like it says in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love to one another. Speak those words, speak whatever is most true about your spouse. Fight for them to believe in their future beauty. Um, I, I've shared this story uh, too many times, and I know I need to get new material, but it, it still just blows me away uh, that she did this for me. Uh, but a few years ago, when I was in a really uh, dark place and, um, and at hopefully my most selfish that I'll ever be, uh, Kelly and I, we just were married. It was hard, and I, I was unhappy, and I was blaming a lot of my unhappiness unfairly on her. And, and we would fight a lot, and, uh, and she would always say to me, Zach, I know this isn't who you are. And sometimes she'd be mad when she said it. Sometimes there'd be tears coming down her face because what I said to her was not right. And she would say that and she'd say, it's how you're treating me is not okay. This is awful, but I know this isn't who you are. But she wouldn't just say, I know this isn't who you are. She would also tell me what she did see. She would, she would she would speak vision over me and tell me about how she knew that God was calling me to, and that he was gonna use me somehow to bring people who, who are far from God, who feel like they're disqualified from God's love, that, that she would speak like, I know that's who you are. There's no way that I would be here today doing this today if it weren't for her. Spouses, that's, our, that's what we get to be a part of. We get to be so committed to the future beauty of our spouse that even when they're acting like a schmuck, we can speak truth and vision over them. The purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. So what's the point? Paul paints this picture of marriage and then he says in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The point is to point. Your marriage really isn't primarily about your marriage. Paul gets to the end of this passage and, and he says, even the best marriages are not about marriage. They're about pointing to something beyond themselves. That they're just a foretaste. That the point of your marriage is to point. What's this whole letter been about? We've been in this letter now for like 10, 11, I don't, a lot of weeks. And over and over again, the theme of, of unity has come up. And how the unity in the church invites people on the outside to wrestle with the Jesus question. That how our unity tells something very important to the unbelieving world about who God is. Our world desperately needs our church, needs Summit Church to be united. Our city needs Summit Church to be united. Everyone's hashtagging Orlando United. Like they need us to show what true unity is. 
So for Summit Church to be truly united, we have to have united marriages. That's why it's such an important part of our ministry here uh, that when people are thinking about getting married, we encourage them to take marriage prep, that we invest a lot of resources into, into hoping, hoping to facilitate honest conversations between couples before they make this commitment because the commitment they're making is that important because it's not just about their marriage. There's something greater at stake. To expound on something Kaylee said a couple weeks ago, people look at our marriages and they make up something about our God. That's why it's important to be a part of the Art of Marriage workshop that's happening at the end of this month. We talked about it last week. If you weren't here, it's in your bulletin. But, but this is a place where, as a church family, we can come together and work on our marriages. And we should work on our marriages more than we work on anything else. Because there's more at stake than just our marriage. The point of our marriage is to point. And I don't think there's, more com there's a more compelling picture to the unbelieving world of who God is than a struggling marriage that stays united. If you're being um, physically harmed or uh, are you fear for your life, uh, you should leave immediately. But if that's not you and you're thinking about leaving, Maybe even thinking about it this week. Maybe you look around and you think other people's marriages are so much better than yours. And that's not fair. It's not fair that, that he doesn't love me like Christ loved the church. Or it's not fair that she's constantly belittling me. Maybe you think your marriage will never get any better. So, of course, your marriage will never be seen as a success. So why keep working? Why stay? A struggling marriage that stays together is a victory parade for the gospel. Don't quit. Come to the Art of Marriage workshop. Talk about it in your Summit Connect group. Invite other people into your struggle. Go talk to a counselor. Your struggling marriage, if you stay, is good news for others. When Robertson McQuilkin um, resigned, uh, Christianity Today asked him to write an article about, about why he resigned. <clears throat> and so he wrote an article, and, and he said the response he got was overwhelming. Um, he got so many letters. It was, it was back in 1990, so it was before email. And so he said every day he would go to the mailbox, and there'd just be just letters upon letters upon letters. And he had, uh, you know, letters from husbands and wives who talked about how they decided to recommit themselves to each other and renew their vows. He, he would have pastors write and, and talk about how, the, how he had used their story in a sermon like I'm doing uh, today and, and the impact that it had. He said, but what surprised and delighted me the most was how many young people would write me and say, that my story helped them redefine what they were looking for in a spouse or even the point of marriage. But he said, even, even with, with all the response, he could never quite put his finger on why it was so overwhelming and so just so much until he was uh, hanging out with a friend who was an oncologist constantly surrounded by the dying, and, and his friends said to him, almost all women stay by their men, but few men stay by their women. 
Jesus looked at you and he saw it all, everything. And he knew what it would cost and he stayed. That's the point. Let's pray. Father God, I, uh, I thank you that, uh, that in Jesus, uh, I'm loved and accepted. That no matter how bad I screw it up as a dad or as a father or as a friend or just as a human being, that you, Jesus, have committed yourself to me. That you are committed to my future beauty. And Father, I pray that for each of us in this room who have said yes to Jesus, that we, moved by that reality, would become the type of people who are committed to other people's future beauty. Father, give us eyes to see our spouses or our parents or our children or our best friend the way that you see them. Give us boldness to speak vision even when it doesn't seem likely. And Father, I just wanna pray right now for our marriages. There are so many marriages in this church that are, that are in difficulty right now. There's so much struggle. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would show them that the struggle does not disqualify them from telling a beautiful story of God's grace. Father, move in each marriage so that today and tomorrow and the next day, they are better reflections of what you always had in mind when you thought up marriage. And use that to invite those on the outside who feel like they're disqualified in. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.